So a few years ago, Susan and I had the privilege of being in Greece to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And from one of the uh, hotel rooms that we had in Athens, you could see the Acropolis. And at night, they had these massive spotlights shining on it, lighting up the entire Acropolis. It was amazing uh, to look at. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, like one of those powerful spotlights, has a ministry that shines our attention on who Jesus is, what he has done. The Holy Spirit's work has always been to point to uh, the magnificence of the resurrection. And as we look at Acts chapter 2 today, we see that as the Holy Spirit uh, through uh, his infilling and indwelling of his uh, of God's people, uh, enabled the gospel to go global. Acts chapter two, starting in verse one. I'm going to read uh, to verse 24, uh, and then we're going to continue from ver- verse 36. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them dispersed tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other native tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed, and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above all signs and in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered and being determined uh, by the purpose and foreknowledge of God, you you have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified and put to death, whom God has raised up, and you loosed, and he loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Jesus could be held by it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, uh, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brothers, what should we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children and to those who are far off and as many as our Lord God will call. And with many words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking bread and in prayers. And then fear and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods, and they divided among them all anyone to anyone who had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. This is God's word. Now each year the church celebrates Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because up until that day, the Spirit of God would empower certain people. But on that day and ever since, the Spirit of God would indwell and empower all of his people. And all who would trust in the saving grace of God are filled with the Spirit of God. And so as we look at the coming of the Spirit, we find that it showcases the heart of God to be with us from the beginning. When you look at creation, what do you see? You see God with us. When you move to the book of Exodus and you see them in the wilderness, what do you see? You see God condescending himself in a box and behind a dusty curtain in the desert to be with his people. We see God with us. What do you see throughout the whole Old Testament until Malachi? You see God's people continually failing, but God continually moving toward them. God with us. What do you see in the manger? Emmanuel, God with us. What do you see here at Pentecost? You see the Holy Spirit being poured out. God with us. What did you see when Jesus was walking with his 12 disciples, surrounded by his 12 disciples in the same way he was, God was surrounded by those 12 tribes? God with us. If you flip to the back of the book to see how it all ends in Revelation 21 and 22, what do you find? The renewed earth, the restoration of all things, God raising us from death to enjoy it. God with us. Pentecost shows us what it is that God wanted from the beginning. We have this transcendent God who, yes, he flung the galaxies into the universe, but he cares about what you're up to on Monday. Our God is transcendent and eminent. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, they asked a question in verse 12. They said, what could this mean? Well, we're going to ask that same question today. What could this mean? First and foremost, it means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. First and foremost, it means that because Christ was raised from death, everyone united to Christ by faith and grace alone who receives forgiveness of his sins means that we don't suffer the finality of death. I mean, that's ultimately what it means. But I want you to look at verse 2, and it says that the Spirit came with a sound like this mighty wind. And the Spirit came, it, the text says the Spirit came from heaven. Uh, the Spirit did not bubble up from inside. Uh, this is like this powerful picture repeated throughout scripture. And Peter Vlar touched on it earlier in the liturgy, that what we ultimately need is not deep down inside us. It is a God who is outside us, who comes to us, who rescues and renews us, who does this reviving work in us, and who ultimately is going to restore all things to us. This is what it means. Now that is on a collision course with the conversation of our culture, and it's radically offensive to suggest that we as humanity are not the saviors of humanity. It is radically offensive to suggest 
that we need a God who is outside us to come to us to rescue us. Um, because the prevailing idea in our culture is that we got this. Um, if you, uh, in the midst of this uh, uh, self-isolation, uh, have become aware of John Krasinski's uh, SGN, Some Good News. Now, there is a reason why uh, he sold that mainstream and that's going to become a, a, a television you know, thing now. Because the world is craving good news. In the midst that we're very aware of all the terrible news, we can open our news feeds and in five seconds flat find scores of bad news. And the world is crying out for good news. Um, and that is because we are not the saviors. We will not save and restore things. We can have a, a measure of success in, in, uh, in, in pushing back the forces of oppression or injustice or greed or, or what have you. But we are not the saviors of ourselves. Some of you listening to this right now, you are uh, professionals. You work with children in daycares or your teachers. And uh, uh, you know some of you uh, moms with young kids, you're all going to attest to this. If you go to a daycare and you're with young children all day, you would describe that kind of work as <clears throat> challenging, invigorating, rewarding, um, you know, inspiring. But you would not describe a daycare as heaven on earth. It's not heaven on earth <clears throat> because we, those little kids, we are not born fundamentally good. We are not born fundamentally loving and outward facing. Those little kids at the daycare, they wake up every day, convinced the universe is revolved around them. It takes all of your energy every day to teach a child that there are other humanoids walking around on this planet that, that need to be considered. And because that is true of the nature of man, our world is beautiful and broken. And it's because of the brokenness that we need the SGN, the Some Good News Network, to be encouraged of the good things in humanity. But because the world is, is beautiful and broken, we need this God who is outside us to come to us like the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to open our, the, the eyes of our heart to see that the resurrection of Jesus is true, that we would place our ultimate hope and, and, and desires and peace in something that transcends the fragility of humanity. This is ultimately what this means. Now, the next thing that it means, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, is that it... What, what Pentecost means is that the same Holy Spirit that empowered the joyful, confident gospel ministry in the early church will empower joyful, confident gospel ministry in this church. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, was poured out at Pentecost, and this was not a private experience. This was a public, public citywide mission event. It was not a closed doors charismatic church meeting. It was a cross-cultural declaration in the city of the gospel to diverse people groups from different walks of life in language that they understood. Pentecost was this catalyst for the gospel to go global. I want you to consider for a minute that in that upper room, you've got 120 people in the upper room. 12 of them were the apostles. The apostles were trained by Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Then they spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus, being, uh, being taught how to interpret the Old Testament scriptures through a cross-shaped lens and the empty tomb of Jesus. They were, far and away, the most trained and ordained people in that room. But they were not the only ones that received the Holy Spirit. They did not receive a special version of the Holy Spirit. Everybody in that room received the Holy Spirit. The men, the women, 
the trained, the untrained, the theologically astute, the theological babies, they all got the same Holy Spirit. And as they got the same power of the Holy Spirit, we find that they went out in this great confidence. What did the confidence look like? What did the infilling of that Holy Spirit look like? When the, when the tongues of fire, the scripture describes uh, the tongues as fire that appeared um, as they went out and they were able to speak in the other native languages that were present, they did so with great confidence and they shared about the resurrection. What did that confidence look like? The Bible says it looked like they were drunk. So let's take a minute and explore this. I think this is an important detail because it's actually how consider Peter's very first sermon at Pentecost, very first public declaration of the gospel. The sermon illustration at the beginning is, hey, uh, we're not drunk. Third hour of the day. So let's take a look at this because Paul actually picks up on this image of drunkenness in Ephesians chapter five when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So let's just take a minute and think about this now. You know, alcohol is a depressant. It, um, it relaxes us. It depresses parts of our brain that enable us to um, just feel very relaxed. And actually, as we are in that state of relaxation, our inhibitions go away. And so there is like, a, what we observe here is that the people are looking at this loud, joyful, you know, declaration of the mighty works of God, of what he did through Jesus Christ. They're joyful. They're, they're you know, they're fearless. They're seeing all this and they're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, like, for drink Amy is happy and bold. You know, she is not afraid to declare that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So there's this joyfulness about it. There's this confidence about it. They don't have this, these inhibitions about it. And the other important thing to notice is that the, the content of what they were saying, they didn't go into the street to preach Christian ethics. They didn't stand on the street, street corners and go, guess what you should be doing on Sunday mornings at 1030. They weren't saying, you know, hey, guess what your sexual ethics should be, uh, you know, uh, they, 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 they were not preaching um, the ethics of the scripture. They were preaching the Christ of the scripture, his resurrection. Uh, this is what they did. This was the message. And there's just this huge difference between being filled with wine and being filled with the spirit. Because when you're filled with wine, you are less aware and less concerned about reality. And sometimes we go to wine intentionally so that we can become less concerned and less aware of reality, right? The Apostle Paul goes, don't, don't go and fill yourself with something so you can be less aware and less concerned with reality. Be filled with the Spirit so that you can actually stare reality in the face with a sense of joyful confidence because you know who you belong to. You know whose, whose arms you are in. And so... We get this uh, picture of this boldness as they go and as they uh, share the gospel. And it's important to note that this joyful boldness that I'm describing here was not obnoxious and it was not weird because 3,000 people were amazed by the news of the gospel. They were moved by the news of the gospel. They responded and they believed the gospel. They Throughout the book of Acts, you find the apostles and Paul filled with the Holy Spirit, engaging different people groups, engaging, engaging different cultures, people of different walks of life. And they are very thoughtfully, joyfully shifting their approach so that they can speak in a language that's understood in a winsome way that can be received. And they are giving a defense, you know, 
for the for the resurrection. They're giving a defense for the hope that they enjoy, and they're not obnoxious or weird about it. And let's not look at the ancient world with some sort of a chronological arrogance as though they were these knuckle-dragging simpletons who were, you know, duped by the story of a man who rose from the dead. These were intelligent people. And if you do some historical uh, research, you're going to discover that a lot of the belief systems in the Greco-Roman world and also among the Jews, there were beliefs that went very deep. So the apostles filled with the Spirit sharing the gospel. This was joyful. This was confident. It was, you know, Spirit-empowered. And it was also thoughtful. It wasn't obnoxious and it wasn't weird. And so they, they were doing these things um, in such a way, with such a confidence and an inhibition about talking about the resurrection, that that's why some of the people said, well, you know, they're drunk. And that could still be the reaction today. You know, on, uh, on Thursday nights, I've been having conversations with a young man who uh, uh, shares a different belief system. And my desire is that when I am on those Zoom calls with him, I am speaking to him passionately and thoughtfully you know, at, at, at certain points because he's uh, of the zone he's in, I'm speaking academically, but uh, I don't want to come across as obnoxious and weird. But yet by, by the power of the spirit being very confident in giving a defense for, for my faith with this young man, um, to, to do so with a, uh, with a real sense of joy. Um, and uh, that's going to look different in all of us as we're having conversations with people. But this is what they observed, this joyful inhibition as they shared the gospel. Um, you know, in Greece, um, at the time, sharing your ideas in public was was common, common exchange of ideas. When Susan and I were uh, at the Acropolis, we could see, you know, a very short walk. There was an open air amphitheater uh, where people had po- uh, philosophical, political discourse all the time. This was common. You'd sit down, eat your food, sit under a tree, listen to somebody share ideas about uh, the world, ideas about uh whatever it may be, the afterlife. So for them to sit and listen to the apostles in that way, in a very public way, that was very normal. That was how they, that was how they shared their ideas back then. Today, we're probably not going to stand on King Street, you know, and just in an open air way, have conversations and discourse about our ideology, uh, 2020 Kitchener-Waterloo, probably not the way most people exchange their ideas. It's probably going to look like having co- coffee and uh, connecting with people and meaningful conversations and being intentional, whether it's work or school or place of vocation, your neighbors, just loving people, caring for them, building relationships with them, and then very thoughtfully and joyfully, without any inhibition, giving a defense for the hope that you enjoy in Christ. This is what we see. When you look at verses um, 7 to 11, you notice all of these numerous countries that are represented here. And this you know, first public presentation of the gospel, it's given simultaneously in every language, which gives us a powerful picture of what God wanted, you know, in the first place on display, the forgiveness of sins for all people everywhere, cross cultural lines, cross walks of life. You know, after Pentecost, what you don't find, first of all, you know, they don't start a, a, um, 3000 people don't come to faith and they say, okay, well, let's all gather together and start a church of 3,000 where we all talk the same, think the same, dress the same, act the same, kind of create this homogenous Christian culture. That's not what happens. There's no such thing as a homogenous Christian culture. In fact, they just go back to their own cultures and the gospel spreads within each individual culture. And this is so important, this cultural uh, diversity, because Christianity far and away 
is the most culturally diverse religion on the planet. And the reason is because you don't leave the distinctions, the, you know, the God-given beautiful distinctions of your particular culture and move into this weird homogenous Christian culture. But rather the Holy Spirit comes and renews you and renews the beauty of your culture and renews the way in which you relate to the distinctives of your culture. And so we find this right from the beginning, what it is that God wanted. Diverse, you know, diverse people from all walks of life. And the reason why this is important for us to recognize that God didn't just want one kind of person, but all kinds of people, is that gives you and I boldness, Redeemer family, as we are reaching out to our, our friends and our, uh, and our co-workers in this city. Great boldness. But there is not one person you know in your life who is not the quote-unquote kind of person that would come to worship Jesus. Those people don't exist. You're not the kind of person that would worship Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and opens our hearts and our eyes so that we believe the gospel and find tremendous rest in it, which means we can, with great boldness, um, thoughtfully and joyfully and humbly share with absolutely anyone from any walk of life. You can't look at a person and say, they're too far gone, their lifestyle is too wild, they would come to Jesus. You can't look at someone in your life and say, they're way too educated, oh my goodness, you know, they have tremendous distinction in their field, they're an ultra-academic, or they're really successful, uh, and they have so much money, they have no need for Jesus. We can't look at anybody and write them off. The, the Pentecost reveals to us that what God is after is all kinds of people. And by his spirit, he is able to save by, in grace all kinds of people. And so we want to be able to look at all kinds of people with a sense of dignity and love. One day, and we're all looking forward to it when we can gather together again downtown Kitchener, uh, we can sit at Redeemer on Sunday mornings in worship next to someone on one side of us in the three-piece suit who has a particular walk of life and someone on the other side of us who has no desire to ever own a three-piece suit or has no means to ever own a three-piece suit on walks of life we can be a diverse group of people uh, worshiping Jesus. And so we want to give dignity and love to absolutely everyone who walks through our doors without passioning any sort of uh, judgment on whether we think they're the kind of person or not who would come to faith in Christ. And so as we look at um, uh, all of this, we consider the message, you know, the message. What, were, what was the message? It was regardless of your culture, your class, regardless of who you are and what you have done, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is for you. None of you are past the saving grace of God. Regardless of your, your class or your culture, Christ's death and resurrection means that united to Christ, uh, you can enjoy uh, the goodness of, of the Father and the presence of God in your life. The presence of the Holy Spirit is described as fire. And as you think about this, all throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God described as fire was never a good thing. It was never a good thing. It was never an inviting thing. It was never a comforting thing. It was always an intimidating thing. But here, fire is described and it's not intimidating. It's empowering. Why? Why the difference? Because at the cross, Jesus Christ took the fire of God's judgment so that you and I, united to Christ, will only ever know the warmth of God's grace. The fire of God shows up in the upper room and they don't crumple into a ball on the ground in, in fear. They actually go out empowered. This is the power of the resurrection, of, the, of, of Christ's forgiveness of our sins. 
This is what it implies and it means. In John 14, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming, he said that the Spirit would draw to our remembrance all that Jesus said and did. This is the work of the Spirit. So what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is made this fiery reality in our lives? Right? It means that we can feel the Father's arms. It means the things that are objectively true, we experientially enjoy. It means that by grace and faith, we know we have God's delight. We know he went to infinite lengths to save us. And so because of that, there's a tremendous confidence you know, that, uh, that uh, comes out of us. There's a lot of little kids here at Redeemer. A lot of you parents have little ones with you. And if that little toddler falls and scrapes its hands and you pick them up and you rub the gravel out of their hands and you kiss them and you hug them. Are they now more your child than they were before? No, legally and objectively, they were always your child. But now experiencing the comfort of your arms and the warmth of your embrace, that, that child is experiencing what it means to be yours. They were always yours. But now they're experiencing it in a, in a profound way. And this is what the fire and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit means for us, church. It means that we, we know not only in our heads that the resurrection is true, but in the depths of our soul, there's a life-changing uh, confidence that comes with knowing we are wrapped in the arms of the Father. And so God's Spirit, described like fire, you know, illuminates and consumes and refines us so that more and more we share his likeness right? Fire consumes and united to Christ, it consumes our disordered loves for our sin. Fire refines and united to Christ, the Holy Spirit refines us so that more and more we resemble the one who saved us. Fire illuminates and united to Christ, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word of God to light the paths in our lives and to give guidance to us in, in wisdom. You know, the, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in you and me means we have an uninterrupted, continual renewal happening because we, are, we can turn to the Father, we are united to the Son uh, through the power of the Spirit. When we look at uh, verses 44 to 46, we get a glimpse of what all of this you know, fiery reality of Jesus looks like. I'm using these you know, metaphorical terms, but like, let's put it on the ground. What does the fiery reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit look like? What does it look like? Well... It looks like all of it looks like a, a, what they believe in their hearts and their minds coming out through their hands. It looks like generosity and community and simplicity. Read that text. You find those things. They relate to their material wealth differently, right? Somebody in the church needs something, they give it to them. Generosity. They're steadfast in their worship, their gospel doctrine. They teach it to their children. They make worship a priority for them and their children. That's why you and I, 2,000 years later, are still worshiping Jesus because of the commitment of the church. Community. We've got this generosity in this community. Then it, it, I love the text. It says they ate their bread and they drank their wine with simplicity of heart. Right? Happily, ordinarily. Nobody needs to tell you who you are. You know who you are. You don't need anything in the city to define you. You know who you are. You're defined. Simplicity. The generosity and community and simplicity. And then in closing, last thing I want to draw your attention to is verse 47 says they had favor with all the people. How did they have favor with all the people? Right? Did they have favor with all the people by amalgamating the values and the ethics of all the people? No. They had favor with all the people because full of the Holy Spirit, full of conviction, 
about the truth of the gospel, they loved all the people. They had favor with all kinds of people because they loved all kinds of people. They confidently and with joy shared the gospel with all kinds of people. You know, before the Exodus, when God wanted to save people in grace, he got Moses' attention by setting a bush on fire. And at Pentecost, when God wanted a global expansion of his grace, he got the world's attention by setting his church on fire. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray.